You're listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. This is issue number six. Community is a practice. As the fourth and final piece of our issue of Attention focused on community and architecture, this episode asks what the relationship is between practices of community design and methods and theories of city and homemaking developed by Black, Brown, Indigenous, and other racial and ethnic minorities in the United States. In it, we focus on the work of Black architect, environmental justice advocate, and urbanist Carl Anthony. Anthony is a lesser-known figure in the field of architecture, perhaps because his commitments escape the bounds of what is typically called design. We'll hear in Anthony's biography that he struggled to find his place within institutions with long histories of excluding and, often, actively harming Black and Brown people. In response, he sought to make a space at the intersection of advocacy and sustainability, and to build structures of governance and leadership that centered Black and Brown perspectives. Anthony was an architecture faculty member at UC Berkeley the author of dozens of influential publications on environmental racism, vernacular environments, and ecological justice. He was also the founder of Urban Habitat, a Bay Area nonprofit focused on urban planning and environmental justice. Anthony's influence and continued relevance, especially on our understanding of the relationship between community and environment, cannot be understated. In contrast to the previous two episodes of this issue, neighborhoods and parks will not be our starting point. Anthony's body of work questions whether the scale of neighborhood is or should be the site to address community problems, especially those of racial equity and environmental exploitation. He instead insists that designers and policymakers approach racial justice and sustainability at the metropolitan scale and within institutions of federal and city government. Molly Estev, a community designer and educator in Portland, Oregon, narrates this episode. It's composed of clips from Anthony's oral histories, public lectures, and Molly's interviews with Jaw Sayers, an environmental psychology student in New York, who helped conduct an oral interview of Anthony's life and career with a team working on Anthony's biography at New Village Press. Molly focuses on how critical readings of race and environment helped architects and planners revise their definition of community, from one based solely in neighborhoods to the expanded scope of the environmental justice movement. Here's Molly. I had known of Carl Anthony as an architect at one of the first community design centers, the Architects Renewal Committee in Harlem, and that early story alone felt as if its relevance had been left out of design discourse. In my continued research and interviews on Anthony, I found that Anthony's lifetime of work, as it contributes to a structurally reconceived role of designers, illustrates a broader goal for design with environmental and racial justice at the forefront. This episode follows Anthony's life and career, asking the question, what should the design profession contribute to the built environment? It spans from Anthony's youth in Philadelphia to his involvement in civil rights organizing and his role as one of the early adopters of the community design movement. It concludes in the late 1970s to mid-1980s when he began to reframe community interests through the lens of environmental justice. At each stage, Anthony pushed against the limited venues that architecture and urban design provided for addressing racial equity and ecological integrity. 
As he did this, he left behind the scale of the neighborhood and instead argued for how communities are formed or destroyed in relation to the shared environmental resources of our greater metropolitan areas. In this episode, you'll hear Anthony speak at various moments in his long career. A number of the audio quotes used in this episode come from the oral histories conducted by Joss Sayers and Arezmia Gorla for Anthony's memoir, The Earth, the City, and the Hidden Narrative of Race, published by the New Village Press in 2017. The editors and I would like to thank Sayers and Gorla for sharing their research with attention. To add to Anthony's story, we'll also speak with Joss Sayers at the end of this episode. Sayers' own work in environmental psychology and participatory action research gives additional context to the continued urgency of questions of community and scale. They also point out how dispersed community is part of the Black radical tradition of placemaking. To frame Anthony's trajectory, let's listen to him speak in 2017 as he reflected on his life's work where he describes how and why he shifted from the intimate scale of the neighborhood to that of the city. I had a clear picture that all of the traditions about neighborhood planning and neighborhood design, we have to lift them up from simply being a neighborhood struggle to a more metropolitan struggle. But we also had to attach to understanding that as we try to address the issues of exploitation of certain communities that we would at the same time really try to put that in the context of elevating our commitment against, for example, suburban sprawl and for uh, the ecological integrity of our all of our neighborhoods. Here Anthony describes a significant shift from community building at the neighborhood scale to the idea that damage to particular communities could not be undone without action against the systemic exploitation of the environment at the city scale. How did Anthony come to define community in this way? To understand, we'll dive into Anthony's biography, following Anthony through five decades of engagement and advocacy with urban communities, architecture, and activism. Biography has a complicated role in the history of architecture, often lionizing so-called individual geniuses and overlooking the many people who work on projects and make an illusion of greatness possible. For instance, Anthony's storytelling cuts a line through the social upheavals and urban transformations in the United States during the 20th century. His biography allows us to understand more than just his personal history, but changes in the world around him. Here's Anthony speaking in a short film produced by Urban Habitat. I was born in Philadelphia in 1939. Our family lived in a uh, cold water flat in a place called the Bottom. The black people all lived in the Bottom, and it was largely because uh, no one else wanted to live there. Philadelphia's Black Bottom, which is an informal and racialized term used to describe concentrated black communities visibly segregated from other urban areas, is where Anthony experienced segregation heightened by the urban renewal strategies of the 1960s as a new vision of white America emerged in the post-war suburbs. Though his community was not placed at the center of new urban visions, a young Anthony was impressed nonetheless by how the urban could be a space for social imagination. I remember particularly my third grade teacher, Mrs. Akins. One day she took our class 
to the Gimbel Brothers department store where they had an exhibition called the Better Philadelphia Exhibit that was designed to show the people of Philadelphia what the city would be like in 25 years. The exhibit helped build consensus around a series of large-scale urban design and infrastructure projects that would transform the city over the next 30 years. Marketed directly towards citizens, including children, the models and the films produced for the exhibit showed a city functioning at a different scale, with grand boulevards, modern transportation, and the renewal of aging and overcrowded neighborhoods. Here's Anthony again. At that time, I was eight years old, and I was very much drawn to the ability to sort of see these things graphically and illustrated. And I decided that then, at that particular time, that I wanted to be an architect and urban planner. As a teen in Philadelphia, Anthony met the landscape architect, Carl Lynn, in the late 1950s and worked with him on several projects that involved building parks and playgrounds for poor communities. Lynn's work on neighborhood commons opened Anthony's eyes to a way of designing at a more intimate scale than the grand designs of modernist planners. He began to see the value of everyday environments and the power of collective creativity. Here's Anthony speaking in his 2016 New Village Press interview. Carl and I used to travel through the streets of North Philadelphia, and he would point out to me how the Ivanthus trees were really treated as weeds. Actually, they were quite beautiful. And as you walk through the streets of North Philadelphia and looked at the backyards and looked at the ways in which these trees had taken over the landscape in the backyards, you could see the presence of life reaffirming itself, even as the city was being destroyed by redevelopment. In 1961, Anthony left Philadelphia to attend night school in Columbia University's General Studies Department while working during the day as the school's janitor. At this time, Anthony was reading James Baldwin and taking part in the emerging civil rights movement. He attended Malcolm X's speeches in the streets of New York, and he began in 1962 to work for the nation's first community design center, the Architects Renewal Committee of Harlem, known as ARC. Following the example of ARC in the 60s and 70s, architects in neighborhoods and universities across the country founded community design centers. Many were inspired by legal and medical clinics which offered free services to the poor. Community Design Centers, or CDCs, allowed volunteer architects and design students to provide what was otherwise an expensive professional service to people who were in need of urban and architectural advice. The Architects Renewal Committee in Harlem was a neighborhood-based advocacy group founded by Richard C. Hatch and eventually led by young Black urbanists. Anthony joined them in their surveys of neighborhood housing stock, the occupation of open lots slated for state development, and the promotion of rehabilitation and infill housing adjacent to Columbia University's campus. He described this moment to Sayers and Gorla in 2016 as such. I was an architect at the Architects Renewal Committee in Harlem and began to work with many of the community groups to do on-the-ground advocacy planning for those groups. And that movement started with ARCH, but then it spread across the country and was actually an element in many of the schools and many of the communities across the United States. 
in proposals, in meetings, documents, and drawings, ARCH demonstrated the same participatory models developed in the concurrent Black Power Movement, which centered Black and Brown residents in the planning and design of public spaces and housing. In a statement put out by the group in 1968, they wrote, We at ARC believe strongly in the advocacy planning concept. We believe that neighborhood involvement, coupled with technical sensitivity to community needs, is essential if the planning process is to be at all relevant to Black and Spanish-speaking people. At this time in Harlem, community development corporations and design centers sought grassroots community-led responses instead of federally-derived urban renewal schemes. In this excerpt from the same 2016 interview, Anthony considers how his time at ARC foreshadowed his jump from the scale of the community to that of a metropolitan region. The idea of a community design center was basically an idea that had been initiated around ideas and creative impulse of Paul Davidow. As discussed in episode two, Paul, as well as Linda Stone Davidoff, were urban planners, civil rights activists, and leaders in the advocacy planning movement, which sought to represent the voices of low-income and systemically excluded communities in our public planning processes. You would create an institution that would provide planning and architecture services for low-income neighborhoods. And what was foreshadowed for me was that instead of thinking about a community design center as focusing on the needs of a neighborhood, the idea then began to take shape of creating this institution that would actually provide the services to low-income communities and communities of color, but would function at the metropolitan regional level. But this was jumping ahead to a future that I had only barely glimpsed when I was leaving ARCH. As Anthony exited Columbia with his Master of Architecture, he felt that his own history had been excluded from Columbia's curriculum. While his peers were traveling to Greece to explore the early structures of the architectural canon, Anthony traveled to observe ecological design in Africa. Here is Anthony speaking on the Bay Area Morning Show, Rising Up with Sonali, in November 2017, on his experience traveling. I had actually gone to Africa to recover my sense of sanity and connectedness by trying to find the roots of my own experience that had a, an alternative source than what was being given to us in our formal training. Some of the experience that I had in Africa was the recognition of the regional quality of the architecture in West Africa. I could look at a photograph or a drawing of West Africa and tell from the buildings where this village was located because each of the buildings, all of the physical environment was taken directly from the building materials that were most present in that region. As you went from north to south, from the dry deserts to the Sahel and the savannah grasslands and then down into the rainforest, you could tell from the building materials themselves where you were located horizontally in the desert. Buildings were taken from building materials that were within 50, 75, 100 yards of the building site themselves. So they reflected both the geographical 
location of building materials and the climate. Anthony's photographs and analysis of West African architecture would be later used by his Berkeley colleague Christopher Alexander in pattern language, though the universal claims Alexander makes in that book are far from the cultural specificity that Anthony took in his own experiences. Traveling to Africa and writing about the Black experience through the lens of geography and design helped Anthony reflect on how design could support both ecological and cultural communities. Those listening might compare Anthony to Max Bond, another influential Black architect written about by Brian Goldstein in The Roots of the Urban Renaissance and in a forthcoming biography. In Anthony's memoir and oral histories, he mentions Bond. They overlapped at ARC and also Columbia University when Bond was hired as Columbia's first African-American faculty member in 1968. In 76, they were interviewed together for an article on Afro-American architecture in the Yardbird Journal. They overlapped again decades later when Anthony returned to New York and Bond was designing some of the city's most influential works of modern architecture. Anthony portrays Bond as a friend, a colleague, and a lifelong mentor. As Goldstein's work demonstrates, Bond had an intricate history of designing and helping to champion modernist architecture that could be culturally and ecologically responsive. Like Anthony, Bond had traveled through parts of Africa and developed a sustainability ethos from those travels. Still, he was very much a formal architect, so different from Anthony's expansive approach to human environmental relationships and their political foundation. It was in 1971, now as an assistant professor in Berkeley's College of Environmental Design, that Anthony could teach how sociological, environmental, and psychological factors shape the design of buildings. Berkeley's College of Environmental Design was known at this point for its interdisciplinary approach to design, education, and practice. The college combined in one building the schools of architecture, landscape architecture, city and regional planning, and art practice. And during this period, Anthony played an important role in the CED's most radical contributions to design and planning, from the school's community design initiatives, students' advocacy for ethnic studies, and faculty experiments in systems design. In 1972, Anthony collaborated with Sim van der Rijn on the design of Berkeley's Natural Energy Pavilion. He felt the use of environmental design techniques and sustainable strategies connected to the overlooked tradition of African-American self-reliance. As the environmental justice movement was beginning to take off in the late 1980s and early 1990s, there was an emphasis on the negative impacts of land use decisions that pollution, destroying the integrity of the the most vulnerable populations. But as we began to look at that, not only did we find those patterns of exploitation, but we found throughout the whole metropolitan region, there were many other dimensions of the same tendency. With this observation, Anthony reflected on the scale of his work with ARC and other community design centers. The crisis for me was whether I would go forward and try to establish myself as a successful urban planner in a field that was defined by its own contribution to racism, or whether I would set out to on a different path, which would be to help to support a planning development that was really in the interest of the most vulnerable and the most disadvantaged communities, but also that was designed to 
bring the work of all of our communities into alignment with issues of sustainability, with social and racial justice. It's useful now to take a step away from Anthony's biography to reflect on the implication of his framing of community and environment and race. To do so, I talked with Joss Sayers, a participatory action researcher and environmental psychology PhD student, who was part of the team who conducted the transcoastal interviews of Anthony in 2016. During our own conversation across coasts, I asked Sayers if they could describe what Anthony's oral histories had brought forward for them. Here's Sayers. The way that he was navigating institutions stood out. It was like, here are all of the navigations and negotiations and struggles and challenges and really told you a story about navigating structures as opposed to pointing to the structure as the answer to solving the world's problem. Especially as a young student, you know, me and my friends were experiencing that similar challenge of trying to place virtue in institutions where we might work. I also know that we cannot completely disengage because we will be impacted by structures of oppression. And I do think those stories help us struggle better. For Anthony, to struggle better meant expanding the growing concerns about the environment to include racial justice. Anthony's own dilemma of how and where he would establish his role inside or outside institutions as a planner and as a designer and as a community advocate took shape during the West Berkeley Waterfront Project. In 1985, Anthony became heavily involved in the public engagement for its redevelopment plan. The waterfront had operated as a landfill site where debris and sewage from city development had been discarded since the mid-19th century. It had large land swaths primarily owned by the Santa Fe Railroad Company, and these swaths known as Bayfill were valuable to developers. Anthony began to lead discussions on the redevelopment plan and public workshops. These discussions highlighted the shifting environmental and racial priorities in Berkeley. A large percentage of residents considered the Bayfill a community asset, and a grand shoreline park would host magnificent views of the Golden Gate Bridge. Downtown Berkeley at the time was struggling, experiencing high rates of vacancy, and more commercial development seemed like it would only strain the market. Here's Anthony speaking at the New School in 2017. We had, at that time, an African-American mayor. We had an African-American city manager. We had four members of the Berkeley City Council. Four, uh, nine members were African-American. And yet, when the people came to make decisions about the planning for the Berkeley waterfront, there were virtually no African-Americans, even though the city itself, at that time, comprised about 20% African-Americans and another 5 or 7% of other people of color during the 1960s, when African-Americans and other communities of color actually were involved in reshaping the traditions of urban planning to make participatory planning a central idea. They were very much engaged with building multiracial coalitions. And so it was a little bit disappointing to me to see, after 10 or 15 years of organizing, that, in fact, the populations that were engaged in making these decisions in the Berkeley waterfront were predominantly European with a few sprinkling of African-American people. The vehicle of local public participation still meant that those with more power and more resources would be overrepresented. 
In this struggle to equitably develop the West Berkeley Waterfront Plan, Anthony saw an opportunity for new disciplinary practice and new leadership, founding the nonprofit Urban Habitat in 1989, alongside his longtime friend from his Philly upbringing, Carl Lynn. Urban Habitat would focus on racial and environmental equity at the regional scale, while also supporting emerging leaders of color in the fields of planning and design. Unlike community design centers, Anthony felt that the neighborhood was not the adequate unit for addressing the intersecting problems of racial equity and environmental exploitation. The mission of Urban Habitat was to build multiracial leadership for sustainable communities in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the idea was to try to build a, a sense of confidence that we could provide not only leadership for our own communities, but we could provide the kind of leadership that was much needed for everybody. During the process of West Berkeley's redevelopment, a number of community members ran for city council positions and once elected formed a redevelopment agency. From there, the council and community members co-developed the West Berkeley Redevelopment Plan, including architectural, financial, and permitting documents. In West Berkeley, this community-based approach to Brownfield's development encouraged Black and Brown leadership, not only in the community, but in public and private sectors as well. As Anthony describes, after the plan was created through a public process, the developers had none of the usual issues getting permits through the city and public approval. Consensus had been built into the approval documents, both within the neighborhood and the city as a whole. If we think back to the Architects Renewal Committee in Harlem, an early influence on Anthony's advocacy planning, they organized at the scale of the neighborhood, running grassroots campaigns while simultaneously working to elevate community representation in overarching review boards and city government positions. It suggests a territory of community that elevates neighborhood-led advocacy to affect planning at the metropolitan scale. Black activists recognized that they needed representation in wider systems. In their eyes, neighborhood design was never just about the neighborhood. Here's Sayers again on navigating power and privilege of institutions and what communities today can and should do with the physical infrastructure built by past generations. There is power in the institution that should be distributed more evenly, but that, that, that distribution has to happen somehow. Specifically in thinking about our like urban and, and rural two infrastructures, they must play a part in our transformation from here to there. Every struggle happens with people using what they have. And as much as the power behind those buildings and the power behind those resources is literally killing us, those can also be resources if we demand them. Sayers is referencing two things described in this series as part of where we base our understanding of community, institutions and the systems that shape them. They both hold great power and on the ground community engagement does not always have access to their power. Sometimes a community may seek to reconfigure an institution or a system that is oppressive and thus better access its benefits, or they may work to dismantle it. In the next audio excerpt, Sayers introduces the concept of separatism as a neighborhood or community seeking self-determination, independent of government or corporate influence. Sayers frames this as a method of survival in contexts where a group has been excluded from resources one which certainly resonated with Anthony's work in the 60s. 
I recently was picking the book up again. And one of Anthony's like reflections later, later was like how separatism really drew him in the 60s. Um, and it wasn't as exciting to him in the 80s and 90s. I definitely feel that impulse often to really lean into separatism. And I'm not, I'm definitely not throwing that away. <laughs> um, but separatism often gets framed as a mode of resistance that like disposes of dominant institutions and evades the possibility of like working with and working in those those like interfaces between resistance and oppression. Um, and I don't think that's actually what it is, but I do think that's often how it's framed. Out of the Black power movement of the 1960s and 1970s, separatism advocated for Black economic and cultural development on a shared experience of racial oppression. It resisted institutions built on the American legacy of deep-seated racism. But as Ja describes, such work does not necessarily forego institutions. Anthony worked within dominant institutions to strategically influence regional, social, and economic policies with on-the-ground methods of community organizing. After 12 years leading Urban Habitat, Anthony returned to New York to lead the Ford Foundation's Sustainable Metropolitan Communities Initiative. The initiative supported community development corporations, those organizations grounded in neighborhoods, to have influence over the larger regional planning schemes that had been primarily led by developers. In doing so, Anthony attempted to restructure regional planning with community-based leaders setting the agenda. Here's Anthony again in 2016, explaining his work for the Ford Foundation. It became an opportunity for us to really intervene and say what kind of social and economic policies would really support and increase uh, community and neighborhood development within the context of this emerging metropolitan region. Anthony anticipated that ideas born out of on-the-ground community work trickle upward to affect the agendas of regional planning. In the introduction to this series, we highlighted Sayer's perspective on Black displacement as a unique form of placeless community. During our interview, I asked Sayers how they define community in their own work. Here, Sayers discusses displacement as a source of value. In experiencing displacement, you learn that everyone needs and has community, and it, it's not going to be able to be, you know, for a lot of people in that, like, nice childhood home where they had access to the park and they lived their whole lives and their generations and generations of family there, or, you know, not being able to trace your ancestry, like, things like that, like, you know, inform, like, how we, you know, relate to our sense of, you know, how we define community. For me, that very much connects to the Black radical tradition and the Black Atlantic and this kind of conversation about displacement as a source of value um, and not in the capitalistic sense, but in like, you know, displacement as a, as a place where we can gather a sense of place. That there's, there's something to be learned in that like groundlessness. So I'm, I'm in, it's funny, I, when I was doing the interviews with Carl, I was in New York was in Harlem living there and now I'm actually living in Philadelphia um, and that's where he grew up and so it's been very cool to like you know like he has a whole I think he has a little section called like walking in the city and it's about his walks in Philly um, and so I like to you know occasionally kind of think of them as I'm walking. Um. Anthony found within the Black experience and the roots of his own experience a different approach to architecture and design. Of his travels in Africa, Anthony remarked that he was attempting to understand the traditions that were so different from his own 
and yet related so deeply to the things that he experienced. While reflecting on his life's course in 2016, Anthony sought to make that experience more visible as a model of how we might plan, design, and build not only toward racial justice, but for the integrity of our ecological resources. Some of the themes about the kind of challenges are on the path toward the sort of conventional architect and urban planning trajectory to sort of find a path that I felt was much more in line with the needs of our communities, uh, <clears throat> particularly African-American community, but also that would be responsive to um, the, the, the fundamentally new situation that we find ourselves in uh, globally. And so it needed a shift and I made that shift. And, and so I really have spent the last 30 years of trying to understand the choices that I made, some decisions that I've made, and <clears throat> modifying what I saw as a need for a new story, a new narrative in which to place myself. And there are a few, <clears throat> few pointers that I would want to sort of emphasize in that now as I look back. Um, one had to do with the absolute kind of essential understanding of the African and African-American experience uh, as being kind of core to my own evolution and also core understanding that I feel is necessary as a foundation for the kind of changes that we really need to make. What is core to the arc of Anthony's biography is core to the arc of this issue, focused on community and architecture, which has explored the territories and forms of community-based design, this essential understanding of cultural experience as a foundation for change. These episodes have asked what role designers and design play in creating communities and at what scales most effectively facilitate participation, identity formation, and ecological justice. Those described in this series worked within and beyond universities. They developed new models of architecture education aimed at training the kinds of actors best suited to bringing about better cities and better communities. At the same time, they questioned the complicity of universities and other powerful institutions in their processes of erasure through urban renewal. Anthony and his counterparts challenged contemporary practitioners to locate the individual and human experience. The challenge offered especially involves an imperative to locate the individual and human experience of particular communities as they sit within large systems of power, oppression, and ultimately to find those pathways toward collective liberation. You've been listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. Issue 6, Community is a Practice. Episode 4 of Issue 6 was researched, written, directed, and produced by Molly Estev, with contributions from Anna Goodman. It was edited by Kurt Gambetta and Joseph Bedford, with post-production assistance from Ethan Curtis. Thanks to the Graham Foundation for advanced studies in the fine arts for their generous support.